Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like radishes, riots and randomness. <laughs> that is a completely good example of randomness there, those three different topics. However, we will be following the links in our minds, as we always do as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of backstabbing is all about the Bolsheviks and the rise of Stalin, or that the history of temper tantrums is all about Henry II and the murder of Thomas Beckett. Gruesome stuff. <coughs> Very gruesome stuff, that one. Uh, the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing, he will nevertheless help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam, and the man not sitting opposite me because we are in lockdown 3.0, but nonetheless ably helping me co-pilot this episode is the famous historical adventurer himself, my friend across town, the guy off the telly, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Hello, James. Hello. Uh, This is another episode of our special homeschooling series for kids and, yes, for adults as well. Uh, In each episode, what we do is take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history and we're going to prove that it does. And today, I'm very excited about this one, as I always am, to be fair. We're doing the history of rats. Yes, rats, Uh, which, of course, is all about the Black Death. But before that, uh, we'll have a little think about how else we might do the history of rats. James. Oh, rats. I, I, got, I was plagued by rats last summer. Mm. Mm. Uh, we were having some work done. Actually, not the summer that just gone, but the summer before that. We were having some work done on the house. And so there were holes in the house. And I came back one day. We had no kitchen and I was eating a bagel. And I'd been eating a bagel and woke up and the bagel had chomp marks in it. And then we discovered that it was, in fact, a little family of rats. Rats in the West are often seen as pests, although not always. One of my colleagues keeps pet rats um, and they're supremely friendly and intelligent animals. Um, I'm thinking also of the Pied Piper of Hamlin, the musician who was paid to get rid of problem rats in the town of Hamlin. Uh, They refused to pay him and so instead he goes off with their children. This is a a story uh, from legend that you can trace all the way back to Lower Saxony and Germany in the Middle Ages and then has a really interesting history. Uh, It appears in the writings of Goethe, the Brothers Grimm, Robert Browning, among others. Um, But Western culture sees rats as vermin, as fearful. But actually, if you have a look at Eastern culture, the rat is is sometimes, you know, uh, an honoured animal. You think about um, it, it being one of the 12 animals of the Chinese zodiac, for example. 
uh, in Indian tradition, uh, rats are a vehicle of Ganesha, uh, and a rat's statue is always found in the temple of Ganesh. Um, so we can think about rats in all sorts of ways, Sam. What about you? Where are you going oh, with rats? Very good. Um, well, I, I had a quick look at the Hamlin story as well, the Pied Piper, something that we're all familiar with. Uh, just a couple of interesting things about this. The earliest record of the story is it's actually it's a, it's a drawing, James, in a state. What drawing? It's an image in a stained glass window created for the Church of Hamelin, um, which dated to around 1300. The church was destroyed in 1660, but a very detailed depiction of the stained glass um, images and the story in it um, does survive. So that's fascinating. And I like this fact here that the rats in the story were actually first added to it around 1559 and they're absent from earlier accounts so you may actually initially think that the Pied Piper story of Hamelin's actually all about rats it's not really it's all about the children about him taking away children and the children disappearing and the rats then were were, were, were added to this story maybe more two and a half centuries or more later um, which I think is very interesting and it makes me think that that was all to do with the plague or suddenly everyone becoming obsessed with rats around the 1550s. I was also thinking about rats as a metaphor, James. We wrote about insects, particularly as a, as a, as a metaphor in our little book on World War II, and rats fit into that narrative as well. Um, and this particularly, it's not just to do with the Nazis and their perception of Jews, but also to do with Americans and their perception of the Japanese. But if you take the Germans first, they had very you know clear views of of the status of different peoples and they had a phrase called untermenschen um, meaning basically subhumans and that's how they categorize Jews the idea well if you think about it in terms of a rat it's okay to kill a rat isn't it um, but it's 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 reasonably wrong to kill a person but to the nazis jews gypsies and others as well were considered as rats they were um they were dangerous they were seen as as disease carrying um, among other things. And it wasn't just, as I said, the Germans talking about uh, Jews as rats, but also the Americans described the Japanese as rats, as fanatical little rats. And this depiction um, helped to, to, to shape battle, to actually to shape the way that battles were fought and in the terms of, of um, the Japanese being considered um, as, as vermin to be stamped out, to be stamped on. And uh, some historians believe that it was actually practical advice for soldiers fighting the Japanese because they were an enemy that resisted um, until death. They would fight on even when hopelessly overwhelmed. Um, so that's a fascinating story there. And I'd like to do some more research into that. So there you go. It's a various different ways we can think about the history of rats. But today we are going to be talking about the history of rats with specific reference to the Black Death. Now, I'm going to start. Just a little bit of background information here for all of you unfamiliar with it. Um, talking about the plague, there are three different types. Bubonic is the first type. Um, it's a, the, the plague is a, is a bacillus, an organism most usually carried by rodents. The fleas infest the animal, um, usually rats, but other rodents as well. And then the fleas move freely over to human hosts. So con to contract the disease, you need to be bitten. Um, the flea regurgitates the blood from the rat into the human, infecting the human. Very unpleasant stuff indeed. You've got symptoms include high fevers, aching limbs and 
<clears throat> the, the key thing to differentiate that from COVID is that you start vomiting blood, uh, which is very unpleasant indeed. Also, you have a very nasty swelling of the lymph nodes. These are uh, glands that are in the neck, the armpits and the groin. And the, the protrusion, the swelling was very, very visible and a nasty colour. It was, it was blackish, uh, which is what gave the disease the name the Black Death. Those swellings continue to expand until eventually they burst and then death follows soon after. What was particularly shocking about all of this, of course, was the speed of it. The whole process from displaying the first symptoms of fever and aches to, to the final death was only three or four days. So you've got the speed of it, you've got the pain, you've got the grotesque appearance of the victims and it all, you know, combined together makes the plague particularly terrifying. Uh, importantly, there were two other varieties of plague, septicemic plague, which attacked the blood, and pneumonic plague, which attacks the lungs. And historians believe that there was at least some form of pneumonic plague certainly going along alongside the main uh, source of plague, the bubonic plague, um, during the, the terrible outbreaks in the Middle Ages. There are numerous accounts of the plague which have survived. I'm going to start by reading one from Messina. Uh, it's a city on the northeast of Sicily. It's sort of just off the, uh, the the big toe, James, of the boot of Italy. That's where Messina is. Um, and this is a description. It's talking about what happened in 1347. At the beginning of October in the year of the incarnation of the Son of God, 1347, 12 Genoese galleys entered the harbour of Messina. In their bones they bore so virulent a disease that anyone who only spoke to them was seized by a mortal illness and in no manner could evade death. The infection spread to everyone who had any contact with the deceased. Those infected felt themselves penetrated by a pain throughout their whole bodies and, so to say, undermined. Then there developed on the thighs or upper arms a boil about the size of a lentil, which the people called burn boil. This infected the whole body and penetrated it so that the patient violently vomited blood. This vomiting of blood continued without intermission for three days, there being no means of healing it, and then the patient expired. Not only all those who had speech with them died, but also those who had touched or used any of their things. When the inhabitants of Messina discovered that this sudden death emanated from the Genoese ships, they hurriedly ordered them out of the harbour and town. But the evil remained and caused a fearful outbreak of death. Soon men hated each other so much that if a son was attacked by the disease, his father would not tend him. If, in spite of all, he dared to approach him, he was immediately infected and was bound to die within three days. Nor was this all. All those dwelling in the same house with him, even the cats and other domestic animals, followed him in death. As the number of deaths increased in Messina, Many desired to confess their sins to the priests and to draw up their last will and testament. But ecclesiastics, lawyers and notaries refused to enter the houses of the deceased. Soon the corpses were lying forsaken in the houses. No ecclesiastic, no son, no father and no relation dared to enter. But they hired servants with high wages to bury the dead. The houses of the deceased remained open with all their valuables, gold and jewels, when the catastrophe had reached its climax, the Messinians resolved to emigrate. 
One portion of them settled in the vineyards and fields, but a larger portion sought refuge in the town of Catania. This disease clung to the fugitives and accompanied them everywhere where they turned in search of help. Many of the fleeing fell down by the roadside and dragged themselves into the fields and bushes to expire. Those who reached Catania breathed their last in the hospitals there. The terrified citizens would not permit the burying of fugitives from Messina within the town, and so they were all thrown into deep trenches outside the walls. Thus the people of Messina dispersed over the whole island of Sicily, and with them the disease, so that innumerable people died. The town of Catania lost all its inhabitants and ultimately sank into complete oblivion. Here not only the burn blisters appeared, but there developed gland boils on the groin, the thighs, the arms or on the neck. At first these were the size of a hazelnut and developed accompanied by violent shivering fits, which soon rendered those attacked so weak that they could not stand up but were forced to lie in their beds, consumed by violent fever. Soon the boils grew to the size of a walnut, then to that of a hen's egg or a goose's egg, and they were exceedingly painful and irritated the body, causing the sufferer to vomit blood. The sickness lasted three days, and on the fourth, at the latest, the patient succumbed. There we are, James. How about that? Goodness me, that's gruesome stuff, Sam. <laughs> uh, it, it puts COVID into into some sort of context, really. Um, it? You know, I mean, the, the 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 Black Death is a pretty horrific um, disease. Now, moving on from this sort of description of the three different types of plague uh, and the symptoms, I want to, us to think now about how the plague spread. So we've got it there in in Messina. So it's off the the sort of big the, the tip of, of Italy. Um, but I want to talk about the the origins and how it spreads into into Europe. So if we start with the Black Death erupted in the Gobi Desert in around the late 1320s, as best as we know. And no one really knows the explanation for why it started. The plague Bacillus was alive and active long before that. Uh, and Europe itself had suffered from an epidemic in the 6th century, historians think. But in the intervening period between the 6th century and the late 1320s, the disease had lain relatively dormant across this time. Now, what happened was the climate of the earth began to cool in the 14th century, a period that is known as the Little Ice Age. Now, whatever reason for it, we know that the outbreak began there and then spread outwards. And while it did go west, it spread in every direction and Asian nations in the east suffered just as bad as elsewhere and it was in China as well and the population in China uh, dropped from around 125 million to 90 million over the course of the 14th century. That is an impressive, um, terrifying 35 million people dead. Now, the, one of the ways in which the plague spreads is along the caravan routes towards the west. In other words, these are the trade routes. And by 1345, the plague was on the lower Volga River in modern-day Russia. Uh, by 1346, it was in the Caucasus and the Crimea. Uh, and by 1347, it had reached Constantinople. It hit Alexandria in the autumn of 1347 and by spring of the next year, 1348, a thousand people a day were thought to be dying in 
Alexandria. In Cairo, in Egypt, the count was seven times that. So the disease travelled by ship just as easily as it did as by land. And it no sooner uh, it was no sooner in the eastern Mediterranean than it was in the western end as well. Already in 1347, the plague had hit Sicily, as we heard. So, importantly here, it was brought along trade routes. Wherever people travelled, wherever people took their goods, they also carried the disease with them. Now, think about that in terms of how... In, of how uh, COVID itself is transmitted today and think about how uh, aircraft travel across the world is is uh, ca carrying the, the disease around there. It's very similar to the way in which the plague uh, was carried. Now, I want now to talk about its arrival in the West. It reached Cyprus, as we said, in the late summer of 1347. Uh, in October 1347, a Genoese fleet landed at Messina, in Sicily and by winter it was in Italy and we've had the, the the description from Sam of what it was like in in Messina in Sicily by January of 1348 it had hit Marseille in the south of France it reached Paris by the spring of that year in 1348 and by September of 1348 it had reached England it moved along the Rhine trade routes and reached Germany in 1348 the low countries uh, in the same year. And 1348 was one of the worst plague years known throughout this period. It took longer to reach the periphery uh, because there was less travel there. So Norway wasn't hit until May 1349. Eastern European countries were not infected until 1350. And Russia, which is much more geographically uh, sparsely populated, uh, not until 1351. Because the disease tended to follow trade routes and to concentrate in cities, it followed a circ circular route. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So the Near East, the Western Mediterranean, then into Northern Europe and finally back into Russia. In other words, we can think about the progress of the plague very neatly fitting into the geographies of medieval trade. Now, when it arrived in England, it entered southern and eastern Europe during the winter of 1347 to 48. The plague then moved to Germany and France, but in the summer of 1348, it reached England at the port of Melcombe Regis in Dorset, and it spread southwest uh, into the shires from there and then into the the, the southeast into London, where it reached by winter. And there are descriptions from the time uh, about it spreading in England, and I'm just going to read you a couple of these. In the Greyfriars Chronicle, I re it reads, In this year, 1348, in Melcombe, in the county of Dorset, a little before the Feast of St John the Baptist, two ships, one of them from Bristol, came alongside. One of the sailors had brought with him from Gascony the seeds of the terrible pestilence, and through him the men of that town of Melcombe were the first to be infected. A Henry Knighton, in his Chronicon, uh, wrote, Then the dreadful pestilence made its way along the coast of Spice Southampton and reached Bristol, where almost the whole strength of the town perished, as it was surprised by sudden death, for few kept their beds more than two or three days, or even half a day. We have other uh, other descriptions. The chronicler Geoffrey the Baker described the plague's arrival. The seventh year after it began, it came to England and first began in the towns and ports, joining on the sea coasts in Dorsetshire, where, as in other counties, it made the county quite void of inhabitants, so that there were almost none left alive. From there it passed into Devonshire and Somersetshire, even unto Bristol, and raged in such sort that the Gloucestershire men would not suffer the Bristol men to have access to them by any means. But at length it came to Gloucester, yea, even to Oxford and to London, and finally it spread over all England, and so wasted the people the scarce the tenth person of any sort was left alive. So there we are, Sam. That's how the plague spread from Africa throughout Europe and into the East. Now, we need to think about, then, about how people reacted to it. There are various different types of reaction, which is really interesting. Um, the reaction from public officials and from many churchmen was the calamity. It was not the vengeance of God, as you might suspect. It wasn't the vengeance of God upon a sinful world, but was a disease. And the authorities took what steps they could to deal with it, but the effectiveness was limited. Cities, uh, unsurprisingly, with the large populations, were hardest hit and tried to take measures to control an epidemic, but the problem is no one understood it. Um, Milan is one of the most successful examples. City officials walled up houses, 
um, that had the plague, isolating the healthy in them along with the sick. Venice particularly took very sophisticated and stringent quarantine and health measures, and they isolated all incoming ships on a separate island. But despite all of this, people died anyway, even though there were fewer in Milan and Venice um, than other places where they didn't take such measures. There are medical measures that were taken, of course. Many believe that the disease was transmitted on the air because perhaps the smell from the dead and the dying was so awful. So the living turned to scents, to smells, to ward off the deadly vapours. In fact, the children's nursery rhyme, ringer, ringer roses, a pocket full of poses, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down, does date from this time. People burned all manner of incense, juniper, laurel, pine, beech, lemon leaves, rosemary, camphor, sulphur and other things that were particularly potent. Handkerchiefs dipped in aromatic oils to cover the face were used. Um, Sound was even used to cure the plague with towns ringing their church bells to drive the plague away. Um, because the ringing of bells wasn't just done during the plague, but for all sorts of crises. And this was an important um, important one. Um, other towns firing cannon, anything that made a particularly now loud noise. There was also no end of talismans, charms and spells that could be ch- purchased from local, or the local wise woman or an apothecary. Learned opinions, quite interesting. Now, what what the, the, the real thinkers of the time considered it? And popular opinion did view the plague as a scourge from God, um, which is re- really interesting, considering that the church didn't necessarily believe that. The Pope sent to Paris um, some people to obtain the opinions of the medical faculty there in 1348. And they studied the problem for a time and returned with the report. And they worked out that the this whole disaster was actually caused by a particularly unfortunate conjunction of Saturn... Jupiter and Mars in the sign of Aquarius uh, that had occurred in 1345. And this conjunction of the stars and the planets, it believed, was caused um, moist conditions, uh, which in turn caused the Earth to exhale poisonous vapours. The report goes on and it recommends steps to be taken. Uh, This is part of it. No poultry should be eaten, no waterfowl, no pig, no old beef, altogether no fat meat. It's injurious to sleep during the daytime. Fish should not be eaten. Too much exercise may be injurious and nothing should be cooked in rainwater. Olive oil with food is deadly. Bathing is dangerous. (laughs) There's all sorts of things there which uh, might affect you getting the plague. Um... In time, other writings appeared, not just this report from Paris, um, and they appeared from pens of the educated men um, from all over the place. This, this is advice from Italy. In the first instance, no man should think of death. Nothing should distress him, but all his thoughts should be directed to pleasing, agreeable and delicious things. Beautiful landscapes, fine gardens should be visited, particularly when aromatic plants are flowering. Listening to beautiful, melodious songs is wholesome. The contemplating of gold and silver and other precious stones is comforting to the heart. There you are, James. Some wonderful advice from the Middle Ages on how to defeat the plague. And I'm glad it's all about the realignment or the misalignment of the planets. Um, I'm sure it is. I'm sure that explains everything. Now, I want to go on and take 
uh, and move on and look at the impact of the plague, the impact that it had on, on society, the economy, art, creativity, all of those kinds of things, and also on, on individuals. And I want to start by thinking about population loss, uh, because I think one of the striking things is quite how many people died during uh, the Black Death. The best estimates of how many people died during this period throughout Europe is about a third of the entire population. Now, that's an extraordinary amount of people. The numbers, however, are quite uneven uh, across the epidemic, and some areas suffered more uh, than others. Urban areas suffered much more than, than, than rural areas. And it's thought that in Florence, between 40 5% and 75%, three quarters of the population died in a single year. So a third died in the first six months. And what this means is that the entire economic system collapsed for a time. In Venice, which also kept excellent records during this period, it's estimated that about 60% died over the course of 18 months. That's about five to six hundred people a day at the height. And certain professions suffered much higher mortality rates than others, especially those whose duties brought them into contact with the sick. So you're thinking here about the notaries, the doctors, the clergy that Sam was talking about earlier on. In Montpellier in southern France, only seven of 140 Dominican friars survived. So these were people who would be administering to, to the sick um, and, and, and burial and that kind of thing. And they were, um, and they were, you know, you know, fell because of this. In England, uh, it's quite difficult to, to estimate because of the kinds of figures that survived. But historians have estimated that between 30 to 50% of the English population died. And of course, this long-term population loss has real implications. Urban populations recovered quite quickly, and in some cases in a couple of years, as you know, new generations were being born. Um, the rural population recovered itself more slowly. Uh, peasants left uh, the countryside, moving into the towns and cities, which also explains the relative growth in urban populations. Now, what this also leads to, this decline in population, it leads to economic disruption. Cities were hit very hard by the plague. Financial businesses were impacted because people who owed them money died uh, and creditors found themselves you know, basically having nobody to go to. Construction projects were stopped and abandoned. Guilds, so those groups that organised crafts, suffered from a lack of personnel and found it very difficult to replace them. If you think about mills and with and places with machinery, when this broke, there may not be someone in the town to actually be able to repair it. And if you look at towns advertising at the time for specialists, they're offering high wages because there is this degree of labour shortage. Um, there's also there's also the problem in in the countryside. Farms and entire villages dry died out, which means that you know there are problems with agriculture and and getting getting enough food. 
Um, it also hastened the demise of the old manorial regime. So the, the sort of the the organisation of agriculture and labour around the manor. Um, there is also there are also social impacts of this. Um, there are the plunging population means that society is much more open and fluid. We move from also a period where land was in short supply to a period when labour was in short supply and actually people could get their hands on, on land. Uh, so we can think of it as something that is, if you think about it in um, that through the lens of somebody like Thomas Malthus, uh, the social impacts of the plague are purgative rather than toxic. It also led to you know, fairly negative views about the Jews and the persecution of Jews. They were among the people who were easy targets for blame. And there are a number of incidents where they are expelled from towns because they're thought to be responsible for the plague. There are also cultural impacts of this. The plague touched everyone, rich and poor. It led to universities and schools either being closed or abandoned or needing to be relocated. Um, 16 of the 40 professors at Cambridge at the time died. Institutions like the church found that priests were dying. There was nobody to hear confession so the kind of day-to-day -day business of religion couldn't go ahead. There's also a sense in which how do people deal with loss of life? You know, not only in a practical sense, how do you bury them? How do you have services for them? How do you remember them? But also how people think and deal with grief and death and despair. You know, why would God do this? You know, why, what, you know, what is it that, that people have done on earth to explain this? And Sam talked a little bit about that earlier on, about the churches thinking on that, about the scientific thinking on that, and also about ordinary people and popular beliefs about what happened. There's also an impact on the cultural arts, you know, and by the later 1300s, um, there appears a very sort of grisly uh, sort of morbid motif in art and one of the most classic examples is the dance macabre uh, the dance macabre or the dance of death and this particular sort of theme shows skeletons mingling with living people in daily scenes so we have for example skeleton horses carrying corpses to the hunt peasant girls shown depicted dancing with death a uh, skeleton receives an infant from its baptismal font and those kinds of things. So there are all sorts of, of impacts from the population, economic, social, cultural and psychological in terms of grief and, and, and psychological trauma, as well as political impacts relating to this in terms of how Europe was run. So there we go, Sam. There's a there's a little section on the impact of the plague on society. It's all fascinating stuff, just realising just how much it can affect society. I reckon it's time for a quiz to see if you've all been paying attention. Question one, where did the Black Death originate? Question two, what is the connection to rats? Question three, what were the symptoms of the bubonic plague? 
Question four. Describe the different methods that were used to either prevent or cure the plague. Question five. How did the plague spread to Europe? Question six. How did contemporaries explain the Black Death? And how about a task, James? Well, I've come up with two tasks here. Um, the first one uh, is what were the short-term and long-term impacts of the Black Death? So that's really based on the last section uh, that we were talking about. Or, and this you may prefer to do, we would like you to write a plague diary describing the impact of the plague on your own town. So you can use your imagination here. You can think about how it spread. You can describe some of the symptoms. You can talk about how people felt about it, how they explained about it, how they treated it. And then you can think about some of the impact. So that actually is a really creative one. Yep, very good. I'd like to do both of those myself. I hope you've enjoyed that, guys. We're going to be coming back with many, many more. Um, do follow me on social media. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so follow us there. And we also have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can see everything that we have been up to and will be doing in the future. That's it for now, guys. We'll be with you again soon. Cheerio. Bye, guys. Stay well. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.